Spanks starting out excavating the cesspit of William the Conqueror's first English castle 30 years ago, he went on to help Powergen become Eon, where his name became an actual verb. He also worked with Vodafone to build better relationships with customers and help Twinings to harmonise their brand around the world. AirBP found their heartbeat thanks to his work, which was so effective the company still referred to his playbook a decade after the project's completion. And he helped the mighty Google to find the language to help businesses develop digital marketing skills. To talk to us about his new book, Stay Human, Unlock Profit by Connecting Your Culture, Brand and Experience, here's Ben Afia. Today, we're going to be talking about brand. It's a small word, but it has a lot attached to it. Ben, can you tell us about brand and branding? Why is it and what is it? It is a small word, as you say, uh, but it has deep meaning, I think, um, and often confused meaning. Brand, I think, is often used in different ways. Sometimes it means a company and somebody. sometimes it means a product, but mostly I think of it as the meaning in people's brains. So, for example, Nike is a company and there are Nike shoes, but Nike resonates in our minds in some way. We have a set of associations with, with the word Nike. And more than just those associations in our own brains, we share those associations with other people. So to me, brand is what happens in people's brains. It's in the minds of your customer. It's their gut feeling about your, your, your product, your service, or your organization. But it's also that shared understanding of that. So I understand what I think I mean by Nike brand. Uh, but because I know that other people think similar things, I can wear Nike if I want to express certain things about myself. I know it sounds slightly abstract, but it is quite an abstract concept. And I think that quite often it's poorly explained and, and not that well understood. Then you continue explaining it to our listeners, Ben. I can. I think there's something quite fundamental about it that people need to understand. So in the first podcast, we talked very much about culture. And culture for me comes before brand very distinctly for a reason. Brand historically has been created by marketing teams, by brand teams, by creative agencies um, based on understanding the market, the context, what's going on for customers, and then creating a service or a product that fulfills a need for them. Um, so it's very much focused on creating that product. The thing is that there is an organization behind that product. There's a culture and a way of delivering that service and delivering the product that can be consistent with what that brand promises or inconsistent. So that's why I start from the culture, because the way to deliver on your promises as a company is to design brand, to create your brand with your culture in mind. When you do that, it means that you can deliver what you, your customer service teams and your store staff are actually realistically able to deliver based on the strengths that they've got, you know, within those teams. There are going to be some listeners who mistake brand for marketing. There are going to be some listeners who confuse brand with marketing. What is the difference between brand and marketing? Well, I suppose I think of it as, I mean, you can think for yourself, you know, people hate being sold to, but most of us love to buy. And so what brand does is it enables us to sell less. Okay. Branding is about helping people to understand why they might want to buy something. So branding is about creating value 
behind a proposition, whether it's a service or, or a product, and then helping to deliver that value. Marketing really, for me, is the act of, of communicating that value to customers. So branding and brand strategy is the thinking that you do, the hard thinking, where you think about why you exist, uh, what you stand for, what makes you different from competitors and other alternatives, how you behave. So all of those questions are quite hard to think through. They're simple questions, but they're very difficult to answer. Mm. And if you don't answer those before you get into marketing, which is your marketing strategy and campaigns, the execution, you know, sending, you know, sending out advertising out there, posting on social media, sending people emails. Mm. If you haven't got those questions clear first, then your marketing isn't going to be consistent and coherent. So what should companies think about, about integrating brand with their corporate strategy? Well, I would say that brand is fundamental to strategy. It's a fundamental part of strategy. Okay. And we're going to come on to the questions that I ask in, in branding, but, you know, I just mentioned them. So for example, within your brand thinking, one of the things that you think about is why do you exist as a business? And that's a really deep question, isn't it? And what might, what might be a typical response? What, what should, a, what might a company answer that question? You know, why do we exist? I guess there can be, you know, historically there would have been more likely to be a profit motive. So they exist to deliver return for mm -hmm. shareholders, to employ staff, yep. um, to make money. Capitalism um, action. Absolutely. absolutely. There have always been businesses that have a, a motive for being beyond profit. Okay. Um, a stronger sense of social purpose aside from just making money. Um, mm -hmm. That's becoming more and more popular, and we can talk about that in a bit. Ben, for the benefit of our listeners, can we take a little closer look at culture and how important that is to be considered before any branding or marketing takes place? And perhaps you can explain the, the, the organic difference around culture when compared to perhaps the, 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 the cold realities of marketing. Yeah, I suppose. Well, so I look at culture corporate culture we talked in the last podcast about sort of three levels mm. um one of those is the technical culture which is how the ability how the company goes about meeting the needs of its customers so how do you deliver an insurance product or how do you create how do you make tea and get it to customers okay uh if you're twinings for example one of my clients for many years the other element that's interesting here is the social culture and the social culture is the nature of the relationships within the organization. So around the technical culture, you have all sorts of social elements of how leaders interact with their teams, how managers work with their people, uh, the relationships between teams and different groups within an organization. So technical culture and social culture. And then you've got a wider culture, a wider context, the uh, macro culture, which is kind of the outside world. So within the organization, you've got the technical getting stuff done and that tends to differ by industry because different industries need different need, have need different things. But social culture actually can be more consistent between companies. And that's probably the connection most strongly with brand because for me, branding is about storytelling. So branding isn't just about creating meaning in the minds of your customers. It's also about creating meaning in the minds of your people. And so what chief execs who have used brand extremely successfully within the cultures have found is that by having a really strong story or narrative to use the posher word mm -hmm. they they galvanize their teams 
and they manage to mobilize the discretionary efforts that you're sometimes asking of your people because they're more aligned to your cause or your mission or your vision, whatever you want to call it. So I think that culture and brand are intimately related. And that's why in my model, I talk about values and behaviors in the kind of culture section, but anybody looking, you know, any brand strategist out there would actually put values and behaviors in brand strategy. I think the two are tightly interlinked and that's why I've actually separated them out. Ironically, I put, mm -hmm. put them in two categories and the subtle messages that you have to consider them at the same time they're they're combined. Okay. And and, wh and and why can't you consider them together? You can, but traditionally brand strategy uh would be something, you know, would be the responsibility of the marketing department or the brand department working mm -hmm. with creative agencies who have people called brand strategists, the term okay. that I've already used. And those are the people tasked with uh, doing research, understanding the market, understanding the culture, and then creating a strategy, mm -hmm. answering those questions. Why do you exist? What do you stand for? How do you behave? All of those things that we'll come on to in more detail. And so historically, that is the, that's the province of a department, brand or marketing. You do also have, so people or HR teams also work on employer brand, but quite often they're done separately, which to me makes no sense at all. So okay. you can have one creative agency who specializes in marketing and branding externally, looking after one side, and then you'll have employer branding agencies hired by the people team or HR team working on employer brand, and they're different things. And that makes no sense to me at all. It should be one thing. There is one brand. It's one story. And that's just because they fall in different departments under different directors. And sometimes, you know, they're just pursuing the projects that they need to pursue and they're not necessarily linked up. And that's what I'm always trying to do. Connect up, make, make those connections between teams. Uh, and you, what we're saying there is that with a very simple connection, some companies could actually perhaps uh, reduce their um, spend by um, 50% just by accepting that culture can't be divvied out to different people. Does that sound accurate? Well, totally. I mean, if you only have to develop your brand once and brand is never a done thing, um, but you do some work on work to create, you know, to get a, a line in the sand, as it were, to start with a stake yeah. um, and it will evolve over time. But if you only have to do that once and you have people team and brand team collaborating on that project, mm. you're much more likely to get something that works internally for the culture and externally for your brand and marketing. And yes, absolutely. You only need to hire one agency or maybe you do it internally, but usually these yeah. things are done with creative agencies. Um, you only need to do it once. You only need to spend it once. Yeah. Is there some hubris here, Ben? Are we, are we seeing that chief executives are convinced that they can force brand through according to their written vision, that they can make a culture by their sheer force of will when in actual fact, as you said in a previous podcast, every company has a culture. They, may, they just might not know what it is or have any control over it, just as every company has a brand, even though they might not be directing it in any way. Um, I don't know if chief execs are forcing it. Um, wise chief execs have probably tried to force brand at some point and, and, it, and not find that it works. Mm -hmm. Um so with experience, we learn that we can't force people to do things and we need to go about things more subtly, unless we work in very much a command and control sort of culture. But those businesses are uh, are fewer and far between now, I think, in certainly in the UK um, and, and perhaps in the US as well. 
um, businesses are, are run in a more democratic way. Um, if you were the founder of a company, then the brand, you, you know, you, you created the brand, the brand is based, the brand and the values are based on your behavior and your executive team, you know, the early, the, the, uh, the people in the business at the start, and you set out working out, you know, what it took to succeed and thrive in business. Mm -hmm. And so that's where your kind of values and principles start from and the behaviors start from. Um, as you grow, that may need to adapt and change, but you're still the founder. So, and you, and you, you know, that, that ethos will still be there mm -hmm. as a business scales and gets to a certain style size. And I talked in the last podcast about scaling through 150 people. When you get to 150 people to 500 to 5,000, that's when things become a little bit more difficult. And by that stage, the culture has become encoded these tacit assumptions are now embedded in the way of doing things. And that's the stage at which it becomes harder and harder as you get bigger and you have to formalize processes more and more. Um, it becomes harder and harder to nudge the culture. So enforcing a brand on a culture doesn't work. Certainly on larger businesses, you have to do it by stealth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the right way to do it, I imagine. Well, I would say so. Um, yeah. <laughs> not not least because if you want if you want employees, you know, if you want your people to feel engaged, excited, and empowered, and to put their you know their full selves into into their work, which yeah. most managers do, then you can't you know you you motivate them more with carrot than with stick. Gotcha. Nobody likes being told what to do. People and people with the who who've expressed the most satisfaction in their jobs are those that have a certain amount of agency who can take decisions, who can um, do work in their own way while fulfilling what the company needs. Um, but the more agency that we give people, the more satisfied they are in the work, the happier they are, the more productive they are. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the better the business is. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you've got, I mean, I've worked with um, some teams that are feeling very browbeaten, you know, in, in challenging industries with, with cha challenging economics, challenging environment. Um, and, you know, I've worked with teams where the morale is quite low and mm. encouraging anybody to do anything beyond, you know, the day job is quite difficult. And mm. when you are talking about values and brand stuff, you're generally asking for discretionary effort. There's mm. something there, effort over and above the day-to-day -day work. Mm. Um, and if people aren't feeling motivated in the, in the first place, they're just not going to give that to you. Those listeners that are hearing this uh, podcast will, I suspect, be thinking of the words quiet quitting as you're talking there. Do you have any mm. thought on that, Ben? Yeah, I think we're seeing increasing amounts of quiet quitting, aren't we? Um, <clears throat> so I think this is the idea that people are just doing the job, showing up, um, doing what the job description says, um, and no more finishing at five and disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I read an article recently actually about quiet quitting. Can you quiet quit your, your kids? <laughs> a nice idea. Um, That's an entirely different podcast series, Ben. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've talked in earlier podcasts about how the dynamics are changing with the uh, pandemic shifting the nature of employment and showing proving to businesses that people can work in a different way than just turning up at an office for the nine to five. Mm. Um, and so 
um, employees are becoming more demanding. And if they're not receiving what they need, I think this is where just just doing the minimum to get by comes from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in some roles and at some pay levels, you know, you can't really expect more discretionary effort. It's mm. not really reasonable. Mm. I imagine that most bosses listening to this would like lots of discretionary effort from their people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the challenge is how do you create a culture and an environment that is so motivating to work for that people want to do more that, you know, they want, you know, they see the success of the business as as something shared. It's something that they can share and be a part of. What's the value of brand though, Ben? I think the value of brand is it makes decision-making easier. So when you have a clear brand strategy internally, then it helps to align all the activity within the business. And that makes everything more efficient and it amplifies your marketing messages. Uh, But it also simplifies things externally. You know, as customers, we just have, we have too many choices and too little time. Um, I was, I was thinking before this, you know, if you go into the average supermarket, how many, how many brands of shower gel are there? I mean, there are hundreds, there are probably thousands of brands of shower gel. How on earth do you choose which shower gel is appropriate to you? Now, for some people, all they'll care about is price and that's fine. But other people want something more from their shower gel. And that's where branding comes in. So brands, the brand and the story behind the brand creates a kind of a mental shortcut for you. So a brand is like a shortcut. It helps you go, is that the right one for me? Or is this the right one for me? Um, You know, most offerings, especially things like shower gel, have very similar qualities. They have very similar features. So the brand and the story helps the company to differentiate. And that differentiation makes it stand out against competitors. So it gets more of the share of market. And we also, we tend to base our buying choices on trust. And so brand, to my thinking, is very much about trust. Brand earns you trust. Brand is about um, about making a promise of some kind and then delivering that. So how do you make that shower gel stand out on the shelf? It's by developing the brand, the story, differentiation, and creating something that people are going to trust. Um, but there are some quite good metrics around this as well. You know, people think of brand as being, you know, I mean, one, I suppose one of the myths is that that brand is, is the logo uh, and it's not the logo and it's not the identity. It's not the product. Um, It's much, much more than all of those things as we've already discussed. It's much deeper than that and it helps to drive growth. So Harvard Business Review um, did a study in conjunction with uh, EY, Ernst & Young, uh, showing that um, the value of brand strategy was it led to 10 times better performance um, and even going back as far as 1994, uh, one of my favorite business books actually built to last by Jim Collins and Jerry and Jerry Porras, um, showed that over a 60 year period, purpose guided companies earned six times more for their shareholders than their more narrowly profit focused competitors. So that's the value of brand, purpose. And this, this leads us into purpose. Absolutely. Mm. Um, We've also talked about um, culture and talent. So one of the big issues with the, the silent resignation and the great resignation, lots of mm-hmm. new terms, mm-hmm. 
is that what a strong brand does is it helps you to keep your existing employees retention, but it also helps you to hire new recruits. And every business I'm working with at the moment is struggling to keep people and to attract the right people. Okay. If you have a strong brand strategy and a clear sense of purpose, that you have a much stronger story for people to relate to, and that attracts and keeps employees much more easily. Um, it also helps drive innovation because branding and positioning makes you very clear, makes you forces you to make decisions about what you are out to do in the world and what you're not, and that helps to focus your innovation activities and therefore leads to more successful innovation. And there are all sorts of ways to, to measure it. You might imagine that this is kind of an amorphous, kind of random thing, but you know, a few ways that you can measure might be, can you charge more? So is there a price premium for your brand? Uh, do customers prefer it, P prefer your brand over others? Mm -hmm. um, uh, does it have an impact on your stock price? Uh, does brand have impact on your future earnings and your financial performance? Um, how does brand um, influence decision-making, both internally but also for customers? So there are all sorts of ways of evaluating these, I suppose, intangible assets of brand. Um, but also, you know, finally you end up with, with, I suppose, the idea of goodwill. You know, you're the brand name and the goodwill. People are attracted to work for strong brands and people want to buy products from strong brands because they, they trust them. Hmm. I think it's important to say at this point to the listeners that you, you're getting a lot of this information direct from the coalface, working with a lot of people and a lot of companies, a lot of the big brands. What, what is your experience when you first meet um, the C-suite stakeholders who have hired you? How often are, do you feel that they are slightly ready for um, the nuances that you're going to be talking about? And how often are they complete? Is this totally new to them? I would say it's quite a mixture, actually. And I, I'd say that there are probably two kinds of organization that I've come across in my 27 years in business. Um, there are sales-driven businesses and there are brand-driven businesses. And can you guess which are the most common sales driven yeah, absolutely yeah <laughs> so actually very few businesses are genuinely brand driven okay and this is a, this is an interesting distinction because um so a sales or commercially driven business is purely there to make money and that's the focus make sales return value to shareholders mm -hmm. and that's fine i have no problem with that mm -hmm. um but that pure focus on sales um neglecting brand actually misses out on growth opportunity i you know i mentioned a few figures a moment ago mm. about the the value that brands can bring for for businesses mm -hmm. um but i do find that organizations and people don't understand brand deeply enough and mm. don't have the sense of how much value it can bring for them mm. um so that's something that you know and, and so we do need to persuade we need to help people to understand how that storytelling happens. And I think maybe part of this is because many people reaching chief exec level will have come from finance or from operations. Mm -hmm. um, marketing and brand people are rare at the very top. Mm -hmm. um, those are the people who've spent their careers working on brands and 
more instinctively understand the importance of it. Mm-hmm. But if you come from a finance direction, that's not necessarily been, you know, the language that you've, you've evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a little bit harder to get your head around what it means because it's quite an abstract concept, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm keen to work on establishing numbers. You know, how mm-hmm. do we prove that brand creates value and that's mm. what it's got to do ultimately it must create value otherwise there really is no point you know there's there's really no no reason to do it unless you're purely a social social mm. purpose led business have you ever had a chief executive who has listened to everything that you've got to say and then said no i still don't get it this just sounds like woolly liberal nonsense to me Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> How often do you run into that kind of boss? Uh, I think it's, I would say it's quite frequent actually. So, okay. um, but it's, and I would say that that's probably more so in the larger, older organizations that have been established for decades. Yeah. Actually that has changed. So when I work with scale-ups um, who are, I don't know, anything from a hundred to a thousand people, oh you have a very different sense because at that size of organization, uh, the chief exec still has a strong sense of who his, who his people are, who his public are internally. Mm. Um, and there's a sense of care and a stronger sense of the relationship and, and a, a familial feel in a way mm. quite often. And um, businesses of startups and scale-ups tend to know that, you know, they, they're, they're more dependent on their people. Mm. You get, you know, in larger organizations, there are more people. Um, and so there's more space to get work done. You're less dependent on individuals, but at a smaller, a smaller scale business, you're more dependent on individual people. So you want to keep them, you want to look after them. And so I find that chief execs of smaller organizations are much more tuned into the stories that they're telling around their culture and around their brand. Hmm. Is there any generational issues here? Uh, you were, of course, drawing on almost three decades of experience, which dates you somewhat. And I'm sure when people meet you, they'll realize that you are uh, an experienced individual. Um, my point being that you and I are both not young people, Ben. Um, right. how, <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> um, but is this a generational thing? Um, do you find that older bosses don't get it and younger bosses do get it is it something as simple as that to some extent but not exclusively so okay. stephen mendel who is one of the of two founders of many pets um a pet insurance company oh. um has a very strong ethos around his culture and has worked very hard to build a democratic involved engaged environment where oh. people can thrive oh. um and he I don't actually know how old he is, but I would say he's a similar age to me. So he's, he's probably late forties, early fifties. Okay. Um, and his background is as an actuary in other large insurance companies. So just because he has a corporate background and a particular, um, career focus, mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean that he's not tuned into brand and culture. Mm. Um, and there are other people running smaller businesses who, who don't get this at all. Um, and they may be young and they may be old. So it's not necessarily an age thing. I think it's probably an openness thing. Okay. Uh, it may be to do with the background. Uh, but I think that probably more younger chief execs get a difference in culture. Actually, I was reading only yesterday an article on the BBC about whether chief execs should still wear suits 
Okay. Yeah. Which was quite interesting. It's something I think about quite a lot. What is your take on that before we move on to purpose and vision? I think that generally our culture has become less formal and the pandemic and working at home mm-hmm. in your pajamas has cha- has changed things. It's changed expectations. Um, I think you still want to be presented. If I'm going to see clients, I want to I want to be thought through. This is personal branding. It is. It's thinking yeah. about the impression that you want to make and it's important to me, me that people take me seriously. Yeah. And so I don't want to look scruffy. Um, but it doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean wearing a suit, but it does mean not ripped jeans and sandals. Yeah. It means being th- carefully thought through. Yeah. So it's it's quite a tricky dance for people now. It's very hard, I think, to get right. So there's one young founder, um, Stephen Bartlett, who recently joined Dragon's Den. And um, this article on the BBC was talking about how he is determined not to go on Dragon's Den wearing a suit because it's not his style. He started okay. an agency called Social Chain, which was incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. He then began a, a successful podcast and has become quite a, a personality, uh, an entrepreneur, investor, mm-hmm. speaker. Yeah. Um, and he was determined not to wear a suit. So there is a generational thing, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily just then generational. Let's talk about audience and how that fits into all of what we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, audience is really the starting point for any brand strategy. Um, and I think of audience in a broad sense. So there's probably three things to think about here. There's the the actual customers that you might want to appeal to. Um, there's also the wider social context, the market that you're working in. And there's also competitors. And in competitors, I also I think of alternatives. So we can have a narrow view of what, who our competitors are. But quite often, competitors, you know, competitors are actually just alternatives. They may be doing different things mm. than just the other companies in our space. Mm-hmm. So to me, audience is absolutely crucial. And it's where we need to start everything from. Um, you know, audiences, audience groups, audience groups, I guess, are groups who might talk to each other, might share things, might have some sorts of similarities. Um, and in marketing speak, we might call this segmentation. So we look at all the people who might possibly buy our product or our service. Mm-hmm. And we divide that uh, mass of people into segments. Mm-hmm. And we divide them up. And then we get, look at the segments and see who are the best fit. What needs of specific segments are, are the best fit for our products and service? So mm-hmm. what can we deliver most successfully where can we satisfy a need most effectively with our culture our processes our strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and traditionally audience has been thought of in sort of demographic in demographic ways so we might think of you know age income level and that kind of thing but that feels a bit old hat to me mm-hmm. in fact what the what the internet has done is is, is democratized those patterns and people have become parts of groups because of things that they like. So preferences and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about the perspectives of those groups. Customers don't care about demographics and whether they fit in a particular age or income bracket. Yeah. But they're interested in other people who have similar views, similar interests to them. They care about themselves and they care about what's, what's in it for them. Yeah. So that's what I suppose a group or a segment might represent. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're thinking about the audience for your brand, um, 
it's about segmenting that market, choosing an audience for whom you can, you know, you can fulfill that you can, you've got particular strengths that will appear to appear to in terms of your products and your service, and then marketing to them specifically. It means making decisions. It means choosing not to market to everybody. And that takes some braveness, um, some boldness, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because choosing an audience means excluding some of some of the audience, some of the people who could buy from you. But the only way to craft a brand and a message that really resonates for some people is to focus in on the people that you really want as customers. Yeah. And it involves difficult decisions. Yeah. That's fascinating. So the the most successful companies accept that 8 billion people will not buy their product. So there are many, many mass market products and mass market brands around, but the really successful products do find a focus, Mm. especially at first. And we'll come onto this when we talk about positioning. Um, But the first step in this process is defining an audience and choosing an audience and, and making the decision to focus on them. Yeah. To the exclusion of others. Well, our listeners can read much more about this in the book that, of course, accompanies this series of podcasts. Uh, but for now, let's move on to purpose and vision. Another two words that we hear interchanged quite often um, is this semantics, Ben? To some extent it is, yes. So I have quite a strong view here. I don't think it really matters what you call any of this. Um, I use the word purpose because I think people recognize it, but the question underlying the word purpose is really, why do you exist as a business? Why do you exist? And all that really matters is that you answer that question and I don't care what you call it. So I think that Ikea might call their purpose, their vision. They've had the same vision for 20 years, I think, probably more. Um, who would, who would I be to say, well, that's not a vision, that's a purpose, or it's not a vision, it's a mission. I just don't think it matters. And I I think what matters is that every organization is different. Every business needs whatever it needs. um, And they can call it whatever the hell they like. But what they do need to do is answer the question, why do you exist? And so really, it's my job to help an organization to find the right fit for their culture. Um, and some might think of purpose as purpose beyond profit, which is becoming increasingly common or increasingly popular. Um, some businesses are starting to come a bit unstuck with that. Um, I don't have a strong view, actually. I think uh, it's perfectly reasonable for a business to make money. Businesses make money, return capital to shareholders. They drive the economy and they employ people, which feeds family, feeds and houses families. Um But many businesses do have a purpose beyond profit and companies like Unilever have taken this to heart and have tried to build purpose into all of their brands. And I think for brands like Dove, um, Campaign for Real Beauty, I think make huge amounts of sense. Um, But when it's trying to find a purpose for, I don't know, Hellman's mayonnaise, it it makes less sense, you know, it's mayonnaise. It's for salads and sandwiches. Um, does it need a social purpose? I'm not convinced. 
Um, however, there are businesses, of course, that are were founded on more social um, values right from the start. And the, the one that's being talked about a lot at the moment is Patagonia. Being talked about because uh, Patagonia's uh, founder um, has just uh, sold well, given his the whole of his business to a trust that will then fund um, solutions to climate change. So uh, when they started out, they started out making climbing gear for friends and were bearing witness to kind of global warming and ecological destruction as outdoors people. So that's always been a very strong ethos. And so, you know, this is the ultimate giving away, um, you know, the ultimate purpose-driven business. He's given the whole thing away, and that's pretty extraordinary. But I wouldn't expect many businesses to go quite that far. It is quite an extreme choice, isn't it? And those listeners that are listening to this from the future might already know of a number of other companies that have done the same thing. Do we th do we think that they're going to be the only company that does that? Or do we think that this might start a small trend or indeed an enormous trend? Um, I think there are other businesses like it. They're relatively few and far between. You know, most businesses need to make profit. And as I say, that's I don't see that as wrong um, uh, to any extent. But I think that having examples of businesses who successful who build a successful brand and a successful culture and a successful PL and balance sheet um, actually can be shining examples for generations coming through. And there is a generational difference here. And the trend seems to be that people entering the work market now, are more interested in social purpose than people say, you know, at our age and older. Um, so, you know, when, when we were entering, you know, when we were growing up in the eighties, um, it was all about making money, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and the city. Loads of money. Loads of money. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that is changing. I think employees want to work for companies that have a stronger sense of social purpose beyond profit. And customers are more interested in buying products from companies that have a social pr a purpose beyond profit. Um, when it comes down to it, they want the right product and the price matters. So we can't ignore that and can't be naive about it. Um, but when they have the luxury to, I think people are make, increasingly making decisions based on, on purpose. This is all fascinating stuff. And, uh, and you're seeing this firsthand every day, aren't you? You're seeing how these companies are having to face these changes or go out of business eventually. I mean, what we're talking about here isn't um, a reaction to what's happening. It, it, it's, it's companies feeling their way forward to the way things are going to work in the future. Does that sound accurate? Well, yes, in the uh, we talked um, a few minutes ago about audience and the kind of the wider cultural context for um, brands existing. And, you know, we need to consider that that wider cultural context and every brand, every business exists within that context. So um, every company is buffeted by the winds of change. They're conscious of the environmental crisis. They're conscious of poverty. They're conscious of the issues that they might realistically you know be able to do something about or to have some sort of contribution to so in the last po podcast i mentioned working with eon this is 16 15 16 17 years ago when they changed from powergen and um their role in combating climate change as ironic as it might seem for an energy company they 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 saw themselves as being 
you know, part of the solution as well as being part of the problem. Um, so I think I thought, you know, I felt that was quite progressive at the time. Um, I used to be uh, an employee at Boots and Boots have, I think, long been um, a good employer of a quite a mixed um, uh sort of workforce and probably more women than men i think i'm not sure exactly the figures but it's always been very accessible for women women um who want to work part-time maybe bringing up children or coming back to work after children um so boots has actually been very encouraging and equitable in that sense and and a, a good employer as a result so i i think most businesses you know are aware of the wider issues and trying to do something about them but they're but you know, people are demanding that they do more now, mm. more than ever. Mm. And it's always say so. This is a growing consciousness amongst companies and a growing consciousness amongst consumers. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Something that wasn't there before. I would say so. I mean, it, and it it has been there all along. It's just become more, yeah, more conscious. Um, and okay. businesses are having to sit up and take notice. So it's it's harder now if you're running a company, if you're running a brand, to ignore the wider social conscience conscience and just set out to make money. Hmm. Um, and, but, I, and that, but that's a dangerous way of to do business in in the modern day, is what we're saying. It is. I, well, I think it's become untrendy, I suppose, and and maybe not in some areas, maybe not in the city, maybe not in finance, okay. um, in you know, in in uh, hedge funds. Mm -hmm. You know, we might be talking something different, but certainly in consumer-facing brands and you know products and services, hmm. products that you find on the shelves in Lidl, hmm. um, insurance that you buy online or through a broker. Um, I think if you face consumers, you have to face up to a different reality than just pure commerce. Hmm. So it's commerce and capitalism with a conscience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but I also think that this leads to um, opportunity. Okay. Um, uh, opportunity in terms of making a stance, having a stance and standing out for something. Of course. So this is where we come to the idea of positioning, which is the next element of my model. Um, ben, I'd like you to tell the listeners um, how they can benefit from positioning with cold, hard cash. Well... That's a very good question, and you absolutely can benefit from positioning with cold, hard cash. So what is positioning, first of all? Positioning is the position that you take in your customer's brain, in, the, in your customer's mind. And in order to take a position in your, in your customer's mind, um, you need to stand for something and to be meaningly different in some way, in a, in, in a way that they value. So this is where the idea of differentiating yourself might come from. Um, and when you think of differentiation, I guess the kind of the questions that clients might come to me might be things like, how can we become more relevant? How can we regain our relevance? Um, how can we reposition ourselves? Um, how can we develop the next breakthrough innovation? Or, or how can we tackle, you know, upcoming competitors? These are all questions of differentiation and the stance that you take in people's brains. Um, so the reason this matters is really because of the way that our brains have evolved. So we're actually hardwired 
through our evolution as human beings to notice difference. Um, because the humans, the early Homo sapiens sapiens who survived and passed on their genes were the ones that didn't get killed by saber-toothed tigers. Okay. Probably more likely snakes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we were on the savannas or in the trees, well, we weren't in the trees, that was uh, chimpanzees, but um, during our evolution, the, the creatures that survived were those that noticed things that were different, noticing problems, notice changed. Um, and so we notice change now because we think that there might be something in it, in it for us. Either what's in it is noticing danger and escaping from it or something that's attractive, like a potential mate. Okay. So if you're a brand and you want to position yourself in the mind of your customer, you need to stand out in some way. You need to have a difference of some kind. You need to be different so that they can't ignore you. Um, so that has a hard commercial benefit because if you, if you stand out as meaning, meaningly different, you're going to sell more product because people are going to remember you. They're going to know, know you for something. And there are all sorts of different ways to do this. Um, and it really depends on, on the organization. So it could be that your product is meaningfully fully different. Mm. Um, it could be that you deliver it faster or more easily. Um, it might be that it's a lower price or it might be that it's a higher price. Um, it might be the range of the offering or, or a specific niche that you fulfill. It might be the friendliness of your service or mm. maybe how customizable your service or product is mm. uh, or the culture that delivers it mm. or the design of the packaging even. So there's, there's loads and loads of different ways to differentiate. The key is to find a very small number of things that you do that customers want that resonates for them uh, that fulfills a need for them and that are hard for competitors to copy. And quite often in mass produced products, that's quite difficult. So if you think about, so if we think about uh, Twinings, who I've worked with for many years, um, tea is a product that's relatively easy to copy. Um, when you pick up a packet of tea, it's very hard to tell whether the tea in the pack is very different you know one pack of tea is different from another pack of tea mm -hmm. so you have to find other ways to differentiate to make it stand out in your customer's mind mm -hmm. the way that twinings do that is through its heritage through its british heritage is um and but also with a contemporary twist mm -hmm. um so they are working on updating all of their ranges and adapting to people's interest in health and creating a a, a range of new teas that respond to different health needs um, because people are, are drinking less black tea than they used okay. to or, or English right. tea, English breakfast tea, if you like. Okay. Um, so as, uh, categories of products wither away and become less used and others, um, become more prominent, you know, positioning is about using the strengths that already lie within the business, um, to develop something that really stands out for customers that they want to buy. And all of that is for the humble tea bag. Um, com most companies, including Twinings, um, have uh, a vast portfolio of products. But, you know, we can talk about the, the details around a tea bag there. So th there can't be many companies that shouldn't be looking at this type of thing. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's um, very important in consumer goods, packaged goods, because there are lots of products that on the surface look quite similar. So that's where things like packaging, storytelling, logo, color, and so on can help you to stand out. 
but there are other services that are intangible. So insurance is a good example. Uh, banking as well. Um, banking, well, in the olden days, banking would uh, be focused on branches. And so you could differentiate your service by um, the layout of your branch, the way that you train your staff, um, you know, the physical makeup of the store of, of the branch. Um, but increasing that's going online and then it starts to mimic in more ways come uh, businesses uh, products like insurance and the thing with insurance is that insurance is essentially a promise it's a promise um, of support when something goes wrong money basically uh, if you have an accident or you're you know uh, you have a flood at home or something like that um, but it's not a tangible product it's not something you can touch or see so it's actually very hard to differentiate. How do you, as an insurance company, um, help a customer to trust you enough to want to put their money with you? And that's where brand actually really comes through strongly. If you're very clear about your purpose, if you're clear about your values and clear about what you stand for, then you can create a differentiated product. And that will reflect itself in the identity, in the voice, in the communications, and then you're helping a customer to navigate all of those different options and uh, make choices more easily. I'm going to put this question to you again, uh, Ben. How often do you see a favorable response to this kind of approach um, when you're speaking to businesses? So how often are people just utterly confused about all of this uh, versus understanding this and then leaning into it? I think most... Um, consumer facing businesses do have an understanding they don't necessarily all or uh, kind of execute on it well um, because it can be quite it's quite a subtle art and it can be quite difficult to get right but if you're dealing with consumers then you know as long as you've been in business you've been thinking about how you stand out and how you attract more business how, how do you sell more stuff um, so you're forced into making those decisions um, and they you know those decisions can be very varied uh, so, uh, with Twinings, you're looking at a premium brand, a premium product. Um, but I've also worked with companies like Wilco's, um, who are creating, who, who actually have an ethos of, uh, selling products at a low price so that pretty much anybody in society, even the poorest can at least afford some shower gel and soap, things like that. Um, and so they're taking a conscious decision, a stance in a different direction to be known for something um, and they're different ends of, of markets. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite difficult to get right um, because it's hard to get into consumers' brains. It's hard to, hard to get into people's brains and understand their psychology. It takes mm. quite a lot of planning. But we're back to this consciousness idea. I mean, it was a conscious decision for Wilco to take that approach. And I guess the difference is going to be those companies that are just rationalizing events afterwards and saying, well, this is just how it's always been. And those that are saying we're going to take a stance and this is the way it's going to be going forward. I think um, I think it depends on the heritage to the organization to an extent. I mean, those two examples are quite interesting because uh, so Wilkinson, Wilkinson Hardware, um, uh, I believe it's still owned by the Wilkinson family. Um, so it's still a family-owned business, at least when I was working with them a few years ago. Um, and so that ethos very much was driven by the families, by, by the family who who started the business in the later generations. Twining's also a family business, um, not family-owned anymore, but Stephen Twining 
when I was working with them last uh, was still the kind of the figurehead of the business. Um, so still one of the original family, a long line of family in, in the Twinings business. And so those tend to be businesses that do have a, an ethos and some sense of social purpose beyond profit. Um, other organizations that I've worked with, maybe less so, um, they've been bought and sold over the years. And so some of that has disappeared. And so the marketing, the branding is, is more commercially focused. Hmm. Um, but it's still trying to achieve a sense of meaning, you know, and a way of standing out in customers' minds for some reason. And those re that reason involves making decisions about what you do stand for and what you don't. So brands, do they have identities or personalities of their own? That sounds like what we're saying here. Does that sound true? They do. Um, and that needs to be designed. It needs to be you know, created. Um, you know, a brand has a personality, has an identity, um, whether you have curated that or not. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that people will pick up an impression just from your behavior, from everything they can look at and see and read and the way that you behave when you talk to them and, and mm. meet people. So yes, there is an identity, there is a personality. Um, what brand strategy can help you to do is to define that and make it conscious so that um, you're, it's helping you to achieve your purpose by defining those things. So that's, I guess, the process okay. of identity, if you like. Right. Uh, this sounds like something that the listeners can get um, a, 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 an easy grip on. I mean, people have personalities, people have identities, uh, and they change over time. And we often say, you know, somebody needs to do some work on themselves if we find that they are constantly causing problems in their social circles. I mean, can <laughs> companies have bad personalities and they need work on themselves? Yeah, absolutely they can. Yeah. Um, I quite often come across situations where, for example, um, a company can be very good at, at giving service on the phone. People are very empathetic when they're speaking to people. Mm. Uh, but when they then confirm things in writing, things can go a bit wrong. Um, this was the case with the, uh, bank that I worked with, um, Aldermore bank, um, who'd been around when I worked with them for about 10 years. So they're a fairly young bank. Um, and for their mortgage, uh, broker customers and the end customers who are, you know, people buying houses, um, their customer service on the phone was great. You know, they were getting great scores, um, people responding very favorably, um, and they were very successful. They're doing well. The problem came when they uh, put things into writing, uh, when they would confirm what had been agreed, you know, decision in principle, for example, for a mortgage offer, uh, when they put that into a letter and put details into an email, what seemed to happen was that the personality became quite legalistic and quite formal and okay. compliance driven. Mm -hmm. So then you've got, you've got a difference. So you're behaving in one way on the phone when you're talking to a customer or to a broker, Mm -hmm. and you come across as very human and connected and the the ethos the values of the company can come through and then when you put things into writing you come across differently uh, they were finding actually that first of all there was a mismatch which i helped them to see but the the problem that they were having was it was causing complaints okay uh, and complaints that were being escalated to chief exec office okay uh, which is a you know it's a big cost to a company they want to avoid those complaints make people feel happy at, at the point of contact so that you know, they don't have anything to complain about. Mm. So 
when we talk about personality in business, it's a slightly abstract idea. Um, but all it is, 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 is similar to the way that we relate to other human beings. You know, we okay. perceive people to have personality. Yeah. And we, and we, we don't think of it as personality with businesses or brands, but that's a bit, a, a bit like how it works. It's using the same human wetware, isn't it? I mean, if we, if we know an individual and we get very mixed messages about their personality, so on, the, on one day they are charming and informative and then the following day they're legalistic and dry, um, we're going to... That's going to affect our relationship with that individual. And yes. it sounds like this is the kind of thing that we're seeing with companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I just think of an example off the top of my head. So if you, you know, often if you hear um, uh, police, senior police interviewed on on um, uh, on the TV, for example, yeah. on the news, yeah. um, the sort of the classic language that might come out might be something like um, the the assailant was observed entering the property from the rear. Uh-huh. Now, if your friend told you this, your friend might say, um, oh, the bloke went round the back. Yeah. So you've got specific word choice that gives a different feeling. Um, and when, when it comes to businesses talking like this, so if businesses use this kind of strangely formal language, um, you get a different feeling from them. And you what, what it feels like to you as a human is that what they value, what's important to them is the law, yeah. is, is, is compliance, is control. Yeah. And that as a customer, you're not really cared for. Fascinating. It's, it's the legal, it's the legal culture of the business that's more important. Yeah. That comes across in that personality and that choice of words. And we respond in a different way. And so that's how for Oldermall it was causing complaints that some of this legalistic language was coming through. And that's what I try and help help them to see and then to fix. Mm. And 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 they successfully addressed this. They did very much so. And the reason we were able to do that was because um, they had they had good quality people and they trained them and the the inherent culture in the business was was strong, especially in customer service. Mm. They were giving good service. Um, and so the job for me was actually relative. It's, it's never simple, but was just to reflect that language and give them a way of expressing that genuine culture in the language that they were using when they were both partly speaking, but mainly when they're putting things into writing. Mm. Any other successes that you can tell us about? Any other case studies or or, or, um, or cautionary tales, perhaps? Uh, yes. So I worked, um, so probably five or six years ago, I worked with Vodafone. Um, the, uh, the deeper parts of the brand strategy had already been defined by an advertising agency. So I was inheriting stuff that's already there. And this is always the case. You know, whenever mm-hmm. I'm coming into organization, there's always... Um, there's always stuff in place in the first place. So I'm not trying to undo what's already been done necessarily. I'm not reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that hadn't been sort of leaned into particularly was defining the personality. The brief from Vodafone was to develop a tone of voice. Um, I'm always looking for uh, a starting point for that tone of voice in the mm-hmm. roots of the brand. Um, and because personality hadn't been articulated, that was where I wanted to start. So Vodafone were happy to me sort of to, to take that. And I ran a number of workshops and conducted interviews around the business to get a sense of where the business was, uh, how they felt about the brand, what was what the existing strengths of the brand were. Mm-hmm. And we developed a personality 
that helped us to, you know, have a, a real sense of how Vodafone likes to treat its customers and wants to come across. Mm. Um, once we had got some words down for for that personality, we're then able to go, okay, so how does this sound? And that's and that's what tone of voice is. That's where I can mm. write some guidelines that help people to behave in a way that's consistent with that personality. Mm. And it is that consistency. I think what you've just said earlier was that one email that doesn't conform to your identity aspirations can put the kibosh on the whole thing. Is that right? It absolutely can. And we're going to talk about this idea of touch points in the next podcast. But when you think of the journey that a customer goes through um, from not being aware of you to being aware of the brand uh, to exploring to wanting to learn more about your product or your service or what you stand for um, to maybe buying something from you whether it's a product or a service um, through to needing help from customer service through to moving on you know coming to the end of a contract or or deciding not to buy from you again or, or buying from you again mm. all of that thing that we might call customer journey all the way along that journey you have touch points you have moments of connection um and you can focus on every point in that journey and understand whether you're making the connection that you want to make. And generally, I find that because that long journey in many businesses is managed, is kind of different parts of it are owned by different teams. Different teams can often end up doing things in slightly different ways. Um, and so we might be creating a strong picture with our marketing, you know, building the awareness, the advertising, the social media, all the moments of connection when uh, somebody doesn't know too much about you. And then when it comes to delivering the service, sometimes this legalistic or form formal or business-like language starts to creep in. Hmm. Um, not consciously. Nobody's ever deliberately trying to be offensive. No. Um, it just happens because cultures become large and it becomes quite difficult to control. So sometimes, yes, you can end up with one email that actually can feel quite terse. Mm. quite legalistic it sort yeah. of shifts the nature of the bit of the relationship and as a customer sometimes i mean i'm sure all the listeners have you know ha can think of examples of when you know the the, the promise in marketing has been lovely mm. uh, and they've they've bought in uh, but the follow-up hasn't quite been there and there there might be just one moment that shifts that perception um and you don't feel that you're really getting the service that you're not really being cared for in the way that you thought was promised I do hope the listeners are seeing as I am uh, the depth of detail here, the 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 fact that this isn't marketing, um, and the fact that we can look at this in terms of human behaviour. Um, we all must have friends who are complicated people who are um, perhaps you know disruptive in their immediate social circles, but we don't instantly ditch them as friends because there is a depth of friendship there and. But over time, that relationship might go off and eventually end. And so this is the kind of thing that we're talking with with brand identity, aren't we? Or have I just used brand identity in the wrong way? Company identity. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think I think company identity and brand identity are intertwined. Okay. And I guess personality is the kind of more human word mm. that explains that, I suppose. 
but there, there there is a long term commitment here that the uh, that the the bosses should see as being more complex than simple marketing. That might be that a, a boss might feel that they have fixed a problem by paying an agency to come in and write a guidebook. Um, but what we're saying here that it's that's not enough. It's like paying somebody else to go to the gym for you. Absolutely. Uh, and I've I've got a I've got a quite a nice example here actually. It's a, it's a a situation that I was facing a couple of years ago. Um, so I had my business banking with Santander. Mm. Um, I'd been with them for about 14, 15 years. Um, and I'd been pretty happy. They hadn't yeah. done anything terribly exciting. I mean, do you expect a bank to do anything terribly exciting? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, but they hadn't really done anything wrong either. I just, I'd had a, a reasonable service. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought of myself as a, you know, relatively loyal customer, although I don't really like the word loyal. I think it's a mm. bit misleading, but you know, I wasn't going to go anywhere. I hadn't any reason to leave. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to remove my old, uh, my ex bookkeeper from the account. And, um, you had to do this by writing in anyway. So I got this letter from them and, you know, so the marketing and I, and actually I, I checked afterwards, I looked at Santander's values, um, on the website, cause many, many brands publish things like their values. And, so I could see what they were saying about themselves. And then I read this letter. Um, it and said, you found a discrepancy. Well, yes. Yeah. So the letter okay. said, thank you for your request. And I'll try and ape the voice that I'm hearing. Okay. Thank you for your request to amend the details on your business accounts. Unfortunately, we are unable to proceed with your amendments due to the following reasons. Please enclose. Please complete the enclosed change of details form. There doesn't appear to be a, something on the account. Please ask the person to sign the highlighted section of the enclosed change of details form if they are unable to sign the form then we are able to accept a letter from your solicitor stroke accountant confirming that they are to be removed as a signatory please note we require a letter letter headed paper to be used by the solicitor at stroke accountant please return the information requested within 21 days of receiving this letter to the address shown quoting case reference blah 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 failure to do so will result in this case being closed and a new form will have to be completed once we have received the required documentation, we will amend our records accordingly. George, how are you feeling hearing that? I'm concerned that anybody joining the podcast at that moment will have <laughs> very quickly tuned out. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I get the, I, I get your point entirely there. Yes, and so what, what action did you take having received that letter? Um, I closed my account. Okay. Okay. I literally close my account. So just to give you to, to kind of emphasize the difference. So when we look at um, Santander's values uh, on their website, their stated values are simple, personal, and fair. Was there any simplicity in that letter? <laughs> no. Okay. Was it personal? Certainly no. wasn't. No. It wasn't really fair either, was it? Failure to do so will result in this case being closed. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's almost laughable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. How, except how it wasn't, it was it? it, it but the, the fact is that you took a direct decision there to to end your relationship with them based on a single letter, and um, I don't think that you are alone in that. I think that those decisions are made every day by millions of people. They are absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a you know an example of where one moment in time, one step in the customer journey, in your customer's journey. Yeah. Um, one touch point 
yeah. can actually really annoy your customer. And yeah. you don't want to annoy people, do you? You really no. don't want to annoy people. Don't give them a reason to leave because mm. you spent a lot of time and money trying to win them as a customer. Yeah. So don't push them away when they get, you know, once they've joined you. You want to nurture those people. Every every chief exec knows that it's cheaper to retain a customer than it is to find you know to, to uh um find, find new ones yeah so save your money and keep your customers happy by looking at every touch point and making sure that the emotions are right at every point in the journey fantastic stuff and as you say we're going to touch on touch points in a future episode of this podcast so those people that are listening to us now do take a look at some of the other episodes um of this podcast ben how does this lead us all to um tone of voice which i believe is a speciality of yours it is it's something i've been doing for the last 20 years or so um it's been the heart of my business for all of that period Mm -hmm. um i'm particularly interested in language because it's um a surprisingly powerful tool for change Mm. because we all use language all day every day you know, all of your people within your organization are talking to each other, they're messaging each other, they're emailing each other, mm. and they are crafting communication that goes out to your customers, that goes to your stakeholders. So language is the way that we get our ideas out into the world. So it's really powerful. And the choice of words, as we've just heard in that letter, really, really matters. Mm. Um, so um, this is about how you sound. So it's the part of your brand personality that is how you sound. Um, you might have heard this called tone of voice or brand language or verbal identity. Again, semantics doesn't really matter what you call it. Okay. I think tone of voice is the more common term. So I use that term. Okay. Um, and to me, tone of voice then is your brand personality coming across in words. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely part of your identity. Um, but it's different from other parts of identity because if you think of visual identity, which is logo, color palette, um, typography, and so on, um, not everybody can get involved in that. That's really stuff that designers do. Um, but as I just said, language is something that everybody uses and they are using it, whether you're controlling it or not. Um, language is used by your exec team, your leaders, uh, your lawyers, it's used by accounts payable. It's used by customer service. Mm. So throughout your business, language is um, powerful, is being used, and therefore it's a powerful tool for change. That's why I like to pay attention to it. Um, mm. And the way that I go about that is by creating tone of voice guidelines. That's um, something that I've been asked for often over the years. Mm. And actually um, something that I picked up very early um, in my career at, when I was working at Boots, I was asked to create the first uh, brand tone of voice for Boots mm-hmm. um, to help the business give a consistent impression to customers whenever they came in contact and in, came into contact with the brand. Um, there is a bit of a problem with tone of voice guidelines. I think by now, most organizations have them. When I was at Boots 20 years ago, relatively few had them, but most have them now and most are on their second or third or fourth iteration. Um, but there is a problem that crops up there. They're often quite academic. They can be too long and difficult to understand, or they can be too brief and simplistic. Okay. Um, there are brand agencies 
for uh, visual identity agencies who can be very good at tone of voice. Mm. Um, but sometimes it's an afterthought. And so it can be a bit too brief and conceptual. Mm. So I think if you're thinking about tone of voice, you want a specialist who can get the right balance between a level of detail and a level of, of simplicity so that people can use it and it feels really accessible. And this can't be a box ticket exercise either, or sometimes a very expensive box ticket exercise. I mean, if a chief executive was to drop six figures sum on producing a, a brand Bible, many hundreds of pages long that never gets read, that might the, the chief executive might feel that they've ticked that box well, but if it's not getting used, then the brand agencies feel that they've done their bit. The chief executive feels that they've done their bit but nobody else actually benefits from that. Does that sound like a familiar scenario? It totally does. Um, and I would never suggest, I'd never recommend the chief exec drop six figures on, on, a, on, a, on, on a set of guidelines, on a brand Bible. Okay. Um, uh, they should be paying much less than that. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's something that should be rooted in the organization. And uh, it's not just a moment in time. In fact, I would say that brand identity, brand strategy is a process. Mm -hmm. If you think of it more as a conversation, if you think of it about uh, in the way, if you think of it as a way of finding agreement, mm -hmm. initially as an exec team, leadership team, but then within the organization of the way that you want behave, to behave, I see brand strategy more as a process, more of a conversation, as a conversation. Mm. Any guidelines that you then come up with are um, the kind of end of a process, the end of a conversation. Mm. Um, they encapsulate what you've agreed, but it's the process that matters. So the way I go about this is that I recruit a team of champions or influencers from across the business, um, especially with tone of voice in particular, because you need to hear what every team needs. So if you think about that customer journey, and the points of contact that your business has with customers. Oh. You've got different team, teams handling different moments in that journey. And um, they will have slightly different ideas about ways to do things. Oh. Um, and to get, to get really detailed on this, for example, I've worked in businesses. I was working with Aviva a few years ago as they changed name from Norwich Union. Oh. And they were quite a big business in the UK, um, tens of thousands of people. And um, the end point of working on tone of voice is to create some sort of style guide which is kind of your kind of your chosen spellings choices of words and that oh. sort of thing oh. um and i found that different teams all across the business had their own style guides oh. and this is quite common um so i find that people are very passionate about language actually and they've they've as, as a team they tried to define it and make decisions about it oh. so and because people are passionate about language, you can't just tell them to use it in a different way. So the, the way to get a successful outcome is through collaboration and through hearing what all of those teams need. So I go out and I find out, have you got tone of voice already anywhere in the business? Do you have a style guide in, a partic in particular teams in the business? Let's see what style guides people have got and what they have in common. And quite often we can have quite detailed discussions about elements of style and there's one team that has been using one approach for many years and another team that has a different approach and we can't just enforce a change on those people we have to bring them along on the journey but in bringing them along on the journey we're also educating them we're also helping them to understand the ethos behind the brand we're helping them to understand the purpose 
we're talking about values, we're talking about behaviors, we're talking about personality. So just by having those conversations, we're encouraging change to happen, but we're also bringing the whole community along along the journey, which means they're much more motivated to put any new guidelines into practice. Do you have any examples of companies that have terrific tone of voice? Yes, uh, not one that I've worked on myself, but Monzo Bank, um, I think, have a great tone of voice. Okay. And they work on their tone of voice in particular. They have um, they have a person who is head of, of writing, head of language, and it's a reasonably senior role within the business. And they have writers in-house and they pay well. Um, so they pay a lot of attention to language. And I think that they've seen that language is a very strong way for them to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. You know, I, I mentioned a little while ago that with um, services like banking and insurance, um, there are very few tangible ways of understanding whether this company is going to deliver on their promise. Mm. So the words, the language, the tone of voice can actually be fundamental to differentiating yourself if you don't have other other, other cues. I mean, Monzo do have the famous coral coloured uh, bank card okay um, and that's a visual identity way of um standing out positioning oh. yourself but monzo in particular have focused on the language in particular and actually you know i mean to that to the extent that uh when they were rec rec recruiting for a writer a little while ago um the opening to a job ad was every word we write matters from what's in the app to job ads like this one oh. to error messages to emails to internal policies to well you get the idea <laughs> so their tone of voice comes through and their valuing of language comes through very strongly. And that reflects, I think, in the service. I'm I moved uh, at the time from Santander, I move I would have moved to Monzo, um, but they didn't do business banking. So I moved to Starling. Okay. And so I now have a personal account with Monzo because I left interesting, I left Lloyd's TSB for Monzo. Hmm. And Lloyd's TSB didn't do anything wrong in their tone. They just didn't do very much for me. And I had actually been with them for 35 years. Oh. And I thought, you know what? There are more exciting options out there. So I moved from them to Monzo and I love the tone of voice and I love the service. The service is mirrored by the tone of voice is reflected in the tone of voice oh. and Starling have a similar feeling, but actually they are slightly more formal in their tone than Monzo. So they are slightly different in my mind, in my sense of them, their, their personality and, and them as a brand. And I would say that I like Monzo slightly more. And for me, it's the language that does that, but that won't be the case for everyone. I'm passionate about language. And so I pay lots of attention to it, but not everybody's so geeky about it. How has the internet and the World Wide web affected all of this? It does sound like uh, we were talking just then about disruptive new brands coming up through the staid old finance industry. Um, are we seeing this across all industries? And does the explosion of communications that followed the birth of the World Wide Web have anything to do with that? Or is it all to do with that? I think it's probably a lot to do with that, actually. Uh, it's a really good point, George, because so what, what the internet's done is the internet kind of combines uh, written and spoken forms of use of language usage. So because we need to be more brief on the internet, uh, writing is more clipped, sentences are shorter, um, it's less formal. And so less formal tones, 
tone of voice is used all over the place. But also I think that Western culture is becoming less formal, certainly in the UK, in the US. So there is less formality in culture. We're less deferential to figures of authority. We don't, we no longer see bank managers as, as figures of authority in the way that they once were in society, maybe in the fifties and sixties. Um, so social mores are changing. Um, sense of formality is changing in in our culture and the internet has then combined these different ways of using language and made things less formal so that has given both an opportunity but it's also presented a threat to to brands um some years ago when i started working with lng legal in general they had done uh, a quite deep piece of discourse analysis which is looking at this kind of the sum of conversations going on within the organization and outside the organization and with the organization. So with stakeholders, with the public and internally and looking at all of those conversations and the language that's being used, they found that LNG were using the language of, of authority, the language of the police, if you like, mm -hmm. okay. the language of the lawyer. So mm -hmm. the legal speak and, and language of control. Mm -hmm. So they identified these kinds of language and the threat was that because society was already becoming less formal, uh, and this was probably 18 years ago, actually, it's quite you know early on in my independent business career. Hmm. Um, this was identified as a threat to the organization. And, and so the board of L&G kind of woke up to this and thought, right, well, we need to tackle that. And that's when I started working with them on defining a tone of voice that would reduce that barrier between them and their customers and make them feel more approachable. Mm -hmm. and what's really interesting about this is that um, so the, the, the board, um, set out to make the, the language less formal in the product literature and the letters in the emails, when people were on the phone to customer service. Um, and what happens is that that has a knock on effect on the culture. So in changing the nature of the language, you're making subtly different decisions about who you are as a business. And I can remember my client many years ago saying to me, I've, I've realized, Ben, that we're not just doing tone of voice. We're actually doing culture change here. Mm. Because by changing the choice of language, we change the choice of behavior. And that's why language is so, so powerful within business. It's an incredibly subtle tool for change. And yes, you can hire external consultants, but you're using language in your business already. So you can do stuff for yourself internally and it's essentially free you already have it you're yeah. already using language so if you subtly change how people use language you're encouraging change ben tell it tell us your sense of personal satisfaction when you see a client finally understand the the, the details of these things and you see that penny drop moment what what type of personal satisfaction do you get out of that well, over the last 20 years, I've done a lot of training. I've probably trained thousands of people directly and, and through my team, many more thousands. And um, we really have changed the culture in organizations. Um, at E.ON, we train 4,000 people in tone of voice, in written and spoken tone of voice. And um, that was a culture that was going through change already. So it wasn't just our work. They were already going through the change of identity from PowerGen to E.ON because of the um, the acquisition by the German um, Eon. Uh -huh. So they were going through change anyway, uh, and that helped amplify the language, the work we were doing on language. Um, and 
um, some source of pride was my name became a verb, actually. People were going around saying, has it been Benafiad? Oh, <laughs> Which fantastic. Is quite funny. Excellent. But also years later, so I actually ended up employing several people from Eon, uh, ex-clients, uh, joined my team at various points. And, um, and the feedback that I got uh, was that we had managed to successfully uh, influence the culture, to change the culture. We had equipped people in customer service to feel more confident, more empowered, more capable when they were talking to customers and writing to customers. People in marketing and in branding felt more confident in their messaging and the way they were communicating to customers in marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm going through quite a big change like that, yes, it's incredibly satisfying and gratifying to see the change that it can make and the Hmm. The way that it can help a company to become more successful than it than it already has been. We were talking earlier about um, Twining's tea. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, Ben, and maybe this will talk about the passion of choice: tea bag milk water or tea bag water milk. <laughs> well, personally, I don't use tea bags at all. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> it was through it was through working with Twining's. Uh, and actually, the start of working with Twinings was lovely because I got a box of tea sent to me, um, which was a source of great joy for uh, my partner and I. Um, we got into loose leaf tea. We started using a pot um, with loose leaf tea. Uh, however, uh, my partner and I do disagree on what you do at the end of that. So for her, milk goes in first. Okay. For me, milk goes in second. Uh, now, I know this is contentious, but that's just how it is. Yeah, I I hear this all the time. Passion of choice, um, in a nutshell, is um, tea preferences. And I think for our, our our listeners outside the UK, you're probably wondering what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> this is a <laughs> peculiarly British obsession, isn't it? It, uh, it is, but I think it's fair to say that the world does realise that the Brits are a little bit tea obsessed. I think we're safe to take that as read. Ben, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for that. And I look forward to speaking to you again on the next podcast. Ben, thank, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you, George. Speak to you soon. You can learn more about Ben's new book, Stay Human, Unlock Profit by Connecting Your Culture, Brand and Experience at his website, benafia.com.